welcome back. Thanks for joining us again here on Broadcast Revisited, a podcast about miniseries hosted by Kate and Carl. And let's get right back into the thick of it with part two of our conversation on the 2008 HBO miniseries, John Adams. Episode four, Reunion. Reunion. Abigail joins John in France? Yeah. Because well, I, I get confused about his location because he goes to the Netherlands at the end of three, doesn't he? Uh, no, not yet. He, oh. he goes to the Netherlands. Um, wait a second. Oh, yeah. No, at the end of three. Yeah, he does. And he gets really, really sick. Right. And then the beginning of four literally is someone coming in and saying the American Revolution, you, right. you guys won. Yeah, right, 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 right. And he kisses. That's a great uh, scene for Paul Giamatti. Hand. Yeah, he kisses the hand of the of the person that brings him that news. It's it's gorgeous, mm-hmm. gorgeous work. Mm-hmm. Um. So then feeling safe and feeling like his his mission has been accomplished, he sends for Abigail to come join him in Paris. Right. And they have, like, their cute little sex scene. <laughs> Which is so fraught. She's loaded for bear. She wants to, she wants to have it out with yeah. him. Yeah, and then, like... he basically spent all that time not giving too many assurances of his affection and, and all of this stuff. And she was like, you know there's no possible reason that I will accept for you to not, you know, they, they were such a loving couple and they sent such beautiful mm-hmm. letters to each other. My pen was silent. Yeah. But no, they just well, like, it's, it's a really lovely scene. I don't know. I, I think one of the things I really love about this is that they are a couple, you know, and they're, yeah. she's not, cause I think history is so quick to portray them as like, she was his advisor, you know, and they certainly had that relationship. But I like that um, this show really takes care to remind us, like, no, these people were so in love with each other. Yeah. Um, they were, yeah, they were so invested in each other's happiness. Mm-hmm. Um, and she, I mean, Laura, Laura fucking Linney <sighs> can do so much with silence. Mm-hmm. Her... Him leading her through that house. And you see, they're these two, you know, he was he was basically a farmer, you know, who studied the law. Mm-hmm. Um, just walking through this gigantic, gigantic manse, mm-hmm. like, just the, un, just the disbelief and the not understanding. And then it is like watching like the two, you know, like Adam and Eve in paradise, just like discovering mm. love for the first time. It's so... It's so funny just seeing them sort of like pull together and apart. Yeah, and they're so and, in the moment, like they're so surprised by how badly they like want each other in the moment. Oh yeah, you know, and yeah. they're sort of like laughing at like, oh wow, no, like I was ready to yell at you, but I actually just, how easily let's just take each other's clothes off. Right, right. How how that in in its in its way is the easiest thing to do to like 
relieve the tension right. that has been building up right. like literally literally and physically right. just to be just to be in each other's arms for that moment mm-hmm. yeah that's really really stunning work on both of their parts yeah so then what else happens in this episode jefferson is there yeah yeah abigail meets jefferson um which i'm sure they met in real life but they you know, it shows the meeting for the first time there. Um, this is 100% my favorite chapter. Mm. This could have been its own, this could have been its own movie. Yeah. Um, this, this one, I think in particular is where the Hooper aesthetic actually works mm. because, you know, he likes yeah. to do these, you know, he likes the, the, you're not really sure what the subject is, like whether it's, is the subject the background, the environment that he's in, or is the subject the person in the frame? And in these scenes in France where you actually do have something to look at, not just like random fucking wallpaper or like a blank wall or like a dirty street. Like here you actually have something filling up that empty space. So this is when I think his aesthetic... um is the most effective because mm-hmm. it's giving your your environment and your subject like the the most um uh weight and appreciation i think yeah personally like that scene with um it's franklin franklin jefferson and adams and they're all talking and immediately you start to see like where their different personalities like yeah. okay well we won but now where do we go from here? They're, it's, they're already starting to butt heads. Mm-hmm. And there is a lot of like shot reverse shot, but he makes it dynamic enough to keep us interested in what they're talking about, which is kind of boring. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that scene in particular, I think is really fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I do love that scene. So let's get to the real centerpiece of episode four. Beyond John and Abigail's very cute sex scene at the beginning. <laughs> the pinnacle of certainly this episode maybe the series yeah i've got to say it's it it, it, this it stands sticks out in my mind this sticks in my mind as the as the finest use of the space of the two actors of speaking of silence of yeah although speaking of the space if you watch closely they are in a green screen room no. I'm telling you. What? I hate to burst that bubble, but there's a couple little glitches in there. It is a green screen room. Maybe not all of it, but some of it at least. Wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'll have to re uh, I'll have to reacquaint myself. There's a lot of like stealth CGI rooms in the Europe stuff. Wow. The worst one is the Hall of Mirrors, where there's like a really bad CGI effect of Ben Franklin and John Adams walking past the mirrors. Oh, no. Yeah. Versailles said, Sophia Coppola, welcome. Tom Hooper, get the fuck out. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. I never clocked that. That's so funny. Yeah. It's not like bad, but it's just one of those like in binging it and sitting like two feet away from it. I did. I did notice. Yeah, okay, okay. Uh, But that does not take anything away from this incredible scene. 
where we have Paul Giamatti, Tom Hollander, the great Tom Hollander. Yeah. Not to be confused with Tom Holland. No, 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 no. Um, he's not Tom Hiddleston. He's not Tom Wilkinson. He's he not is, Tom Holland. He's he Tom is Hollander. Tom Hollander. Probably best known as Mr. Collins in the 2005 Pride and Prejudice. And he's like the really terrible, like, there's like the um, proto what's his face, who I think also is in John Adams um, in Pirates of the Caribbean. And he's like the um, another Kira Knightley, like, love interest. Oh, yeah. But then he's like the one in like the second or third Pirates movie. And he's like, awful. Right. Tom Hollander. He's like brutal. Yeah. 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 In and like it... a very foppish way, of course. Sure. Sure. Um, also in this scene, who I don't think he has any lines, but Bertie Carvel, who <laughs> is, I think he won the Tony last year for the play Ink. Oh, damn. Okay. Is that what it was called? I think yeah, so. He, he plays Lord Car- Carmarthen. Yeah, he's like the only other dude in the room. Yeah. Um, but he's great. And if you want to see him and stuff, you should watch Dr. Foster, because that is a great show. Oh, yeah. He was in Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, which is another one we might have to do. Oh, yeah. Okay. okay. Um, there's like a whole <laughs> bunch of like British actors who I remember from random stage stuff that they did around the time like samuel barnett barnett who okay. plays thomas right adams right, right. yeah he was olivia in the mark Rylance or no mark Rylance was olivia um he was somebody he was either i think him and johnny flynn traded off the roles of violet and sebastian in that production oh my god how funny yeah. well and of course you've got as uh uh william smith You've got hot priest himself. Hot priest himself, Andrew Scott. Okay, um, so we've got the 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 uh, the season, the series, uh, uh, the diamond scene of the... uh, an uncomfortable post breakup conversation of yep. all uncomfortable post breakup conversations between King George the Third and John Adams. Yes. So John Adams has been named ambassador to Great Britain, to the court of St. James. Mm-hmm. And I love when Ben Franklin is talking about his like, you know, the, the British love and insult. Right, right, right. You're the perfect um, person to send. Yeah. Um and, you know, there's all this, like, this build-up to Adams having to, you know, have an audience with King George. And you have this very sort of, like, pre-The Crown scene where he's, like, being given all the instruction of how he has to bow, the amount of times he has to bow, how low he has to bow, what he has to wear, all of the pomp and circumstance of, like, what you have to do to be in a room with the king. Right. Um. So they they do a great job building out the tension of it. Yeah. Jeez. And then he enters this enormous room that is like so sparse. It's so empty. It's yes. a it's literally a throne, a throne room. Right. Meaning that there's just and a nothing more. And a room. 
<laughs> right. And a big tapestry in the back. Yep. And I don't, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I guess that has to be like the throne room at Buckingham Palace, but I don't know enough about that space to, to know that. But this incredible confrontation between Adams and Hollander. And when we say, and, and King George, and like when I say conver- confrontation, the creepiest and most incredible thing about it is how loving they are toward each other, if that's the word. The, the apprehension on both of their parts, because you right. can, re- in, in his silence, you just see how hurt George is. Yes. How literally he feels like a parent who's, who's been abandoned by their child. Yes. And it, the whole scene, so it's so emotionally charged. And it really is a breakup scene it, it, or a post breakup scene where like Adams is uncomfortable and hesitant to tell George how well he's doing and how well right. America's, you know, it's like, yeah, it's, it's painful to Adams to have to be like, we are better off without you. Right. You know? but, but we, we want so desperately your friendship. We want exactly. to be friends in this new sort of like world we've created. And, and it, thankfully they sent Adams because in, in this scene, they each, each person in as, it, as much as they can, they do let their guards down mm-hmm. um, and find a way to connect, which is just like crazy to me. Yeah. You know, here's yeah. someone who has lived in America his entire life, has never, ever, ever bowed to any kind of king or aristocrat or anything like that. You know, mm-hmm. he's never well, had and... to go around like miladying and malording. Right. And, you know, and George, King George does not speak for a long time in the scene. And right. that's, I mean, that's part of the brilliance of Tom Hollander. He does not blink. Uh, I think he blinks like once and he's, say it again. He has tears in his eyes. Yes. And he's just this sort of like diminutive person who, oh man, I don't know. It's like, it's hard to just convey, like, go watch it. Go watch it. They're, they're two tiny men with big voices that are both speechless in the presence of each other. Exactly. They just don't know. And then they do find like, there's this tiny, tiny bit of release. And, mm-hmm. and George says something like, I'm, or no, he, Adam says like, I'm so glad that I was given the honor of like coming to you. Yes. And George says like, well, yeah, I'm glad it, I'm glad it was you too. Like I was the last person to, um, to agree to American independence, right. but the choice having become inevitable inevitable and the um, way he fucking says the word inevitable ooh. is like mm. oh Tom. Both, just such, th- both actors are such masters of their craft and you yeah. see it in every every breath not taken every word not spoke it's yeah. just it's all in the sun it's this episode is is literally like is like whoops all subtext like the whole thing is just <laughs> the entire episode everything between john and abigail everything between um george and 
George the Third and John. Like it's just all of the discomfort. Well, and then going going back um, when they finally end up back at in in uh, the states at Peacefield, their new their yeah. new family home, right. and there's so much discomfort and so much subtext happening mm-hmm. around the dinner table. Yeah. Um, but we can get to that because, yeah, so sure. That's basically all I have to say about the George the Third scene. But it's just, yeah, it's unreal. Well, and I, but I think what's also really fascinating at the end of that scene is he's. I think he's also recognizing because of how trembling he is in the presence of the king, it makes him realize what an enormous feat it was to achieve independence. Oh yeah. yeah. Um, because it's the first time where he's like, I don't know how to. You know, obviously he's never confronted the king before, but here's Especially this... not as a person. Well, exactly. Here is this entity that has always lived in the abstract, and exactly. here he is as this small man in front of me. Yeah. And here I am as the small man in front of him. It's uh, such a fragile... It's such a... It's fragile. That's a great word for that scene. It's such a precipitous tightrope walk. That they mm-hmm. both, I mean, George really doesn't have anything else to lose. So he could have thundered and, and railed yes. and done done a ton of stuff. But, he but he's waited. just sad. He waited. <laughs> and he's so, he's so sad. It's like the most horrible divorce. Like, honestly, yeah. fuck, fuck marriage story. Just watch that one <laughs> scene. Watch that one scene and you'll get, you'll get more out of that one scene than you'll get from the entire movie marriage story. Sorry, wow. we don't have to talk about that, but. Of, I mean, like, I thought we were going to come after Hamilton. I did not know that this would be <laughs> us going after Marriage Story. Hey. <laughs> if the shoe fits. <laughs> so are we moving to Unite or Die? Yeah. Well, there's the this tacked on to the end. Um, oh, God, that's right. Washington of, is president. They Well, and they pop. So they pop back to the United States. Somehow in between meeting the king and... And going home, John and Abigail aged about 20 years. Um, well, their kids certainly did. <laughs> in one boat trip, uh, everybody aged about 20 years. So that I just don't cute. understand how Thomas was a baby. Right. When John Adams left and he returns and he's like fully 20 years he's old. 20 years old, <laughs> three months later. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, but so then, yeah, they have a really uncomfortable family dinner that really hurts. Um, poor John that's... Quincy says that he's going to marry a 15-year-old, which is really cute. <laughs> Woof. And Charles... Well, and how old is he supposed to be at that point? Probably like 21. Or like So, like, so... at the time, would it have been, like, not great age-wise for him to marry her? I mean, it's never great. It probably would have been fine. But it was more about her class, right? It was more about, And it was more about the fact that I don't think he had, he hadn't finished college yet. Mm, Right, right, right. He was like, John, like, John Adams was basically gearing him up to, like, he was basically like, here's the carrot, here's the stick, which one do you want? Yeah. (laughs) You know, you can choose the right decision or I can make the right decision for you. Right. Right. Um, which is to be, you know, finish college and get set up in his own law practice and like blah 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 blah. Right. Uh, and then and then Washington becomes 
our first president. He sure do. He sure do. Unanimously elected, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, yeah. I don't really know. I mean, that's another thing, like, I say this as someone who doesn't know a lot about George Washington. Mm-hmm. So I have no ground to stand on when, when I say this, but I really feel like no one ever knows what to do with George Washington in these things. Like, yeah, I think the, I feel like he was probably a very boring guy is kind of the sense that I get. Yeah. He was so quiet. He was so notoriously quiet. Right. Um, I think but it, he was it fluctuates bit, he was a from bit like malleable, too. Right. You know what I mean? I think that he, I feel like George. I think of George Washington as like he's like that high school football jock that everyone can look up to. <laughs> totally. But is like he's, Finn he's very much doing. He's very much doing what people are telling him to do. Yeah. Well, and that I mean, again, I don't want to jump the gun. Well, because that, that does start to come into play in episode five when when we meet Hamilton. That like. Oh yeah. In obviously in the show about Hamilton, uh, their relationship the is show seen... about Hamilton. No, I'm saying like versus the show about John Adams, like in, in terms of POV, you know, like right, right, right. If you're making a piece about Hamilton, that relationship with, uh, well, let me rephrase. If you're making a primarily uncritical show about Hamilton, it's the relationship between him and Washington is this very father-son dynamic, very, um, he, he, he saw so much of his younger self in Hamilton and totally um, men- is nurturing, mentee. right, mentor-mentee, whereas in John Adams, Hamilton is seen as, like, this, like, worm tongue to yep. Washington, and he is this manipulator, and John Adams and Jefferson hate him so much because, like, this man has the ear of the president in a way that is going to ruin our our burgeoning government so it's just working the whole system right which is i mean this this literally brings us into episode five unite or die is that this is literally just it's hamilton being a fucking dick the whole time (laughs) yeah hamilton and i mean if you want to see how hamilton is portrayed in this look no further than the fact that they cast rufus sewell the ultimate (laughs) the goat of the of that moment because i don't really know what he gets cast as these days but between the years of 2000 and 2010 if you needed a quick way of saying this is my snarky villain this is a sexy a sexy villain that's rufus sewell yeah his eyes are green and he is mean. You cast Rufus Sewell. <laughs> yep. So like Rufus Sewell playing Hamilton is does a lot of work of understanding, oh, he's the bad guy. Yeah, that's that's audience shorthand, like at its finest. Yeah. Like, you know, oh, someone's on their knees, they have their hands like pressed together and they're looking up. They're praying. This is Rufus Sewell, he's evil. <laughs> Those are two great. That's that's coding, <laughs> right? It's, that's, that's the, the visual language of, what coding of the piece. Is. <laughs> oh my god! 
Good lord. Um, yeah, they do very little to give him, like, a ton of, um... Oh, he doesn't get an inch. Just sort of, I don't know, like, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? They don't, they don't really give Hamilton the benefit of the doubt in this. No, not at all. And that did, like I stated in the first part of when we were talking, this totally framed the way that I view Hamilton. So Mm -hmm. it was hard for me to see a musical sort of, like, extolling him as this, like, uh kind of like hero like this heroic Mm. founding father when i've always thought of him like avery jessup in 30 rock thought of him um a big government duel loser (laughs) you know what i mean it just never it never really got much further than that for me i i do need to read the ron cherno uh biography but but i don't think it'll change my mind um <laughs> so we've got and that's that on that that's that on that we've got big government versus states right we've got the the banking industry basically leading a tidy little uh uh trail all the way back to england which jefferson is very upset about mm-hmm. and that you know that basically shows the conflict between hamilton and jefferson and hamilton and adams and then there's even more tension between adams and jefferson mm-hmm. because they're choosing different ways to deal with the problem mm-hmm. um yeah like i think Je- uh, jefferson says something about like we'd be british in our economy british in our you know parliamentary right. whatever you know we'd basically be british this is all the stuff we were trying to fight against right and is this also happening at the same time um well, yeah, because this 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 culminates in Adams as VP having to um, break the tie about whether to sign the treaty with the British, and and therefore right. firmly be not on the side of the French Revolution. The Jay Treaty, yeah, yeah, which he didn't actually. Again, I'm doing the thing I said I wasn't going to do. Um, so no, guess please, what? I'm because just, like I'm honestly, this it. stuff is such a snooze to me. So I'll, I'll be honest about that. He <laughs> didn't don't pay attention to the treaty stuff, but he didn't have that power to make that vote. But it's basically what the what the show is framing him as as doing is like, oh, he he has to make that choice. But well, because I think they have to. Sorry. Yeah. No. No. Please go ahead. But I think, yeah, and I think to what you're saying, one thing that struck me about that episode was, like, this is them trying to kind of bridge the gap between how different the roles of the vice presidents, of the president and vice president were at that time versus what they are now. So I think it was, like... He only gets to have a say if things happen in, like, if it's, like, a perfect storm. Right. So Which I think it wasn't. They passed the resolution 2010, um, and even if they had been at a tie, it requires a two-thirds vote anyway. So it wouldn't have. It wouldn't yeah. have. You know, come to a tie. Yeah. So, but he had to have a consequential stay. Say in that they had to. Sh- yeah, they had to show us sort of how not useful his job was until it's useful and then of course he makes a decision that pisses everybody off exactly um which is a which is a great you know again a great use of shorthand for for Mm -hmm. us to and i think like this continues building on what is the seed that is planted in episode four 
when he is the ambassador to England and begins coming under extreme criticism and public criticism from Ben Franklin uh, and then later Thomas Jefferson. But once he becomes vice president and then later president, that it, it tracks Adams's comfort levels with being pretty despised by yep. a lot of people. And I think that's, that's one of the interesting things about Hamilton that, you know, obviously John Adams, the series presents a very unflattering portrait of Hamilton, that he is sort of the ostensible villain of these later episodes. Right. Um, whereas in Hamilton, <laughs> John Adams is just the butt of a joke the couple times he's mentioned, that he, oh, yeah, which is like part of the tone jokes. of that show. Yeah. But, um, but he doesn't, he's not a figure in the story. He's just like and I the joke that I can't believe he's the president. Like in, in these sort of like presidential retellings, honestly, give me bloody, bloody Andrew Jackson because it is so, it's framed in such a funny way. But mm-hmm. in Hamilton, it's like saying funny shit very seriously instead of saying, serious shit in a funny way like i think i said to you before i was like the only the only way that they could have done a hamilton musical that i think i would have resonated with would be if um uh matt stone and trey parker wrote it (laughs) you know what i mean in like if it was if it had been done uh satirically it's just done with such sincerity that it's just like oh my god honestly yeah like, well, and I think I think that is a thing that a lot of people have talked about since it premiered on Disney Plus of like looking at that and remembering the blinding earnestness and optimism of the end of the Obama administration. Right. And we just cannot connect to that feeling again. No, no, no. And I think that's one of the things that makes me a little bit sad that I never really listened to it at that time. Because, like, looking at it now, I'm just like, I just can't, I just can't connect to this, to the spirit of this at all. It's like Julia Stiles post 9-11. It's, <laughs> you know my, you know my theories. I don't have to, I don't have Carl, to. Carl, that is such a, you have to explain what that means now. Because this is like, okay, so now you need to hear a story of a very specific thing that happened between us as friends. <laughs> No, it doesn't. We don't have to go into it, but I have very strong. I have a very strong theory about like. The okay, Im- the theory the is impact, just the one time I was hanging out with Carl and I said, "What happened to Julia Stiles?" And you said, "9/11." Without missing a beat, <laughs> without without a minute to think about it, and you better believe that I, I still feel that way, and it is proven. A proven fact that we just the way that media happened after that, we went towards. There was no room for Julia Stiles anymore. We couldn't look at her and <laughs> feel the same way about her. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like you you just didn't see Nev Campbell for years because we didn't need some like sophisticated, smart. <laughs> actress we couldn't just have someone who was smart because she was smart she had to be 
smart. <laughs> you know what I mean? It had to be a political statement. I still... Okay. I really want to read your peer-reviewed article about that on how 9-11 shaped media's portrayal of intelligent women. Of Julia Stiles. <laughs> you think Julia Stiles Julia and Nev Campbell as, your, as the frames of your argument? You don't think I will, but I will. <laughs> I know you will. This is all getting edited out. <laughs> oh, absolutely not. Please, please Jesus. Um, so, yeah. Anyway... Anyway, John Adams. Uh, um, well, we, where were we? Here we well, actually, actually, we talked about the Jefferson Hamilton drama. How about one, two, three? It's Mamie Gummer. <laughs> she enter, is here. Enter Mamie Gummer and the great Sarah Polly. I mean, as Nabby Adams. She's Nabby. Nabby Adams Smith. Yeah. She's amazing. She is. She's a great actress and director and writer. Yeah. We love. Um, yeah, she's she does a great job. Actually, I think both both of the actresses who play Abigail Adams, um, you know, no, young young ab young nabby and and older nabby they both do such a great job of like being the same person like they just they genuinely look like related yeah um but anyway (laughs) yeah that's ambassador ambassador (laughs) janae uh and colonel smith andrew scott andrew scott as as nabby's husband yeah i mean should we get into it please is it time so (laughs) nabby was uh she was engaged before she was engaged to colonel smith she was engaged to some or captain smith uh excuse or was it colonel smith um colonel smith uh she was engaged to a gentleman named royal tyler am i correct correct royal that's correct l's Mm-hmm. Who was a playwright, mm-hmm. and also happens to be Kate Royal's ancestor. It's true. It's true. Yes. So, Nabby Adams was engaged to Royal Tyler, and this was while John Adams was in Europe. So he was not present while this was going on. So Abby was like keeping everything unlock abigail adams the mother yeah um and royal tyler did not have a very upstanding reputation in massachusetts viewed as a bit of a rake uh and not not up to snuff to be the daughter of to be (laughs) the son-in-law to marry the daughter of uh, John and Abigail Adams. So Abigail Adams started a gossip campaign about him throughout Massachusetts <laughs> to just like stir shit and ruin his reputation and ultimately break the engagement. And she succeeded, and Royal Tyler uh, sort of was forced into exile. I mean, not exile, like he still like went on to have a very lucrative career in the Vermont legislature. 
in Middlebury. Um, but yeah, there was a time in where where the Adamses may have been ancestors of mine. Yeah, he had eleven children. That's pretty cray cray. Yeah, so he figured it out. So that happened. That is not present in the miniseries John Adams, though. Right. I can't believe that they would skirt that. Well, I think part of it is like, I know you're like being sarcastic right now, I am. but <laughs> like, but it, it, I don't think they, I mean, for a lot of reasons, they wouldn't have put that in. But also, it's so similar to what is going on to the, the thing that happens with John Quincy that they don't need two examples of the Adams parents pressuring their children to break up with their significant others. Oh, yeah. They were, I, I, it would have been nice to see that because they basically have one, one conversation in a hallway where they're talking about Colonel Smith. Um, where Abigail's and then they're super married. for it and John is like, no, like, don't do it. And Abigail's like, yeah. could you just chill for a sec? Yeah. Um, like, she's really happy and he's like, he's like on his way to do some stuff. And again, um, in real life, they did fully help him with his career. Uh, in the show, they sort of show it as like, he asks a- Adams for help and then Adams right. give it to him. But they definitely did help. It's only when he started speculating on his own and went west. And he did take Nabby and the kids with him. They mm. just, when she started to get sick, she wanted to go back to Peacefield. Um, yeah. And then when she knew she was going to die, she wanted to die at Peacefield. Um, yeah. Spoiler alert. <laughs> but, um, yeah, no, that I, I do. I think they did a really good job of like framing the Colonel Smith drama mm-hmm. um, and introducing Mamie Gummer, his sister, Sarah Smith, as the future Mrs. Charles Adams. Whew. Yeah. Yeah. Which we didn't talk about. I, I didn't mention the, you know, planting earlier in like episodes one and two i think it was of charles sort of being a nuisance and yes literally john adams like going out of his way to like you know i think he shouts at him at one point he's like remove yourself sir like get out yes get out of the way get out of the room stop making noise so they try to like they try to plant in our minds that charles had a bit of a he was either like the scapegoat kid or like he got the brunt of the um uh uh maybe not punishment but what am i trying to say uh like correction yeah well i think one thing that is very true in how the series depicts adams is that he has a very very complicated relationship with his children and complicated mm. in that he just has no real warmth with any of them. Right. He's very distant. And I, I I do think that's reflective of sort of what the dynamics of parents and children were at that time, that your children served a very specific, like, economical purpose to you. Definitely. Um, and in his Adam's... mind, it was his, his focus was on things that were so much larger that being an attentive father never really crossed his mind as like, 
huh, I should really work on that. You know yeah. what I mean? He was busy. And I think, yeah. Literally sorry. fighting a war for independence. And, and that was how he was going to show his love for his children. Yes. I don't remember if it's in this episode or in episode six when he has... Because he has a few confrontations with Charles. They have the uncomfortable family dinner at the end of four. Right. And then, and they then have there's like, the I think one. In each, each episode that, you know. Oh, yeah. No, it is. It's like five and six. Because I think in episode five, we have. I can't remember exactly what precipitates it. I think it's either that Charles has like left law school or something like that. Has, has done something very disappointing. And Adams rails in on him and Charles is like, you know, he's a wounded child. And he's like, you're not, you were the name at the bottom of a letter. He's asking if if he can marry um, Mamie Gummer. And and he's like, he's like, no, well, and, and the one at the end of um, the one at the end of four, he had, he had he he kept getting stories about Charles getting drunk and like running right. naked through um you know Harvard 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 Square or Harvard whatever yes and and he like admonished him for that and then he's like can can I marry this girl like m- basically my sister in law um and he's like not until you're like done with your shit and he's like you don't really get to tell me what to do because you're never around so like how are right. you even gonna stop me. <laughs> to which yeah. Adams is like, "What the fuck did you just say to me?" <laughs> yes, and it's it's oh, it's so sad because he's so he's so damaged by so many things, not the least of which being that like he has no relationship with his father, and his father came and like I'm I'm certainly not saying that like that's a damaging thing that someone growing up without a father is damaged, but for Adams to not be in his life at all and then come in and immediately just start berating him about everything. And it's like, who the fuck are you, dad? Like, you don't know who I am. You don't know anything about the man I've grown up to be. Well, then all Uh, of them. You don't get to say I'm a disappointment to you because like you, you couldn't give a shit. Well, and he, he basically comes in and in that one dinner scene at the end of four, he does that to all of them except for yeah. Nabby and Thomas because Nabby and Thomas right. are smart enough to know like you know this this man you know writes our che- you know signs our checks like we have to right. sort of toe the line and, and he just can't John Adams or John Quincy being the the oldest of them he's the only of the children that Adams had any sense of who he was going to be as a person before he left for Europe because you have to remember like he was gone for upwards of 10 years right and well and but again i mean like to what least, he right, takes he's... him to france and then he sends him to russia <laughs> right he says go ahead <laughs> where in real life they definitely saw each other more like he made several trips back sure. and forth back and forth and like at one point charles did come to they went to london together they went to paris true, together and charles was like in real life was around but the way that they're framing it in the story is charles becomes an alcoholic and a bit of a ne'er-do-well because he felt abandoned by not just one parent but then that parent asks the other parent to abandon the children 
to yes. you know to the care of tu- what does he say like to the care of tutors and nannies um yeah and it's basically like i only want you around i yeah they can basically just get you know boarded and uh and taught will you know will cover the expense but we don't have to be around them so right that he sees the kids so much as just an extension of abigail and he's not really interested in them like i think the only person he has shown as like loving unconditionally is abigail absolutely yeah um so he gets his punishment for that is charles's um growth or lack thereof mm -hmm. you know into this sort of rakish character yeah well and he also can only frame his love for his children around the love he sees abigail have for them right like the only thing that makes him sort of second guess and he i mean ultimately he doesn't he digs his heels in about charles but you know his appeal to charles is you're breaking your mother's heart right you know where he's like i'm fine to just like tell you to fuck off but the person who does mean the most to me will not allow me to do that but then there is like and this is getting ahead to episode six but um but when charles well there's that incredible scene with abigail and charles when he is in the bed and he's like into episode six dying um so basically we learn in episode six he has married mamie gummer they have a couple kids she appears at the Adams household, um, and I, I guess with bruising or something that makes Abigail realize, like, oh, my son is abusing you, and she says, like, you were right to get away from him. Um, well, and he had, um, he had borrowed money from John Quincy ex- and, right. couldn't, and couldn't pay it back. Right, and so he fell into a horrible spiral that led to alcoholism and subsequently abusing his wife yeah um and then john finds him in this like this is a very to me like tom hooper les mis sequence of john adams like roaming the underbelly of like that is so that is the like precursor to like jean valjean finding just fontaine just windows and people hanging out of windows and yes more, more garbage and Shit on the ground and yeah. saying like have you i'm looking for charles adams and some like toothless man like pointing a craggy finger down the... he lives over there around there <laughs> and this um, is where my favorite line happens tell me my favorite line in the entire thing uh one of my favorite lines is when and when he uh he smashes his uh cane down on the table and wakes Charles up from a drunken stupor and he says something about my son my son is a mere rake a buck blood and beast and it's like the diction alone just makes me like hard but the whole thing is so like calling him a buck like you're a buck you're just you're an what are yeah. you doing? Like, yeah. oh my god, it's so it's such brilliant. It's writing. so good. Yeah, yeah. No, it is brilliant writing. So juicy. Um, yeah, and that's sort of like that's when he renounces him. Yeah, and he 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 says like you're I literally renounce you like you're done. Yeah, and then Charles immediately is like, "Have mercy, father." Because <laughs> he go yeah he tries to like fight back and then immediately goes spineless and it's like please daddy no. <laughs> And it's right. horrible. Yeah. Um, 
And then there's that, like, as he is dying later on, I think it's in the same episode. Yeah, um, it, is. it is. When Abigail goes to see him. Oof. And she just, like, sl- he's, like, sweaty and, like, clearly dying in his bed. <laughs> And Abigail just slaps the shit out of him <laughs> and, like, gets up real close. And she's, like, basically, like, don't you fucking dare die. Like, she doesn't say that. I don't remember the specific she line, but says, she's, like, um, come she back says, to us. You have a wife and children. They have great need of you. And she says, I, I have great, have need, great of need of you. Like, he's literally, like, bleeding. And he's, like, she says something about... um. He, he says, is father here? And she says, no, he has to deal with the election in Philadelphia. And he says, oh, yeah, the election, huh? And then he, like, scrambles and reaches for, like, the bottle. And she's like, no, yeah. no. She, like, holds him down on the bed and, like, l- leans in really, really close. Like, she's basically, like, mm-hmm. laying on top of him, like, yeah. whispering into his ear. It's such a great scene. And Laura Linney, again, like. Again. The one, the one bad thing about Laura Linney is she can't do bad acting. She just doesn't. <laughs> she just doesn't know how to act like garbage. She no. just can't help herself from being fucking great. Yeah, um, it's really annoying, actually. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then yeah, there's like, crazy. and I think that's one of my favorite scenes between later between her and Paul Giamatti when she reads the letter and that he's dead and she just Ooh. breaks down and it is the one time that he does not uh where you see that they are a united front on so many things but they are not united as parents well and that's, that's the thing that that's so much that splits them exactly that she, she's like oof. he's dead and is sobbing there and he's like well, may silence reign over his tomb uh-huh uh i will never forgive him yeah yeah, and she does again. Fucking Laura Linney, good God in heaven! She her walk out of that room. Mm. She because she get she gathers like her letters up because she had been doing her correspondence and got the got the word of his death, and right. she gets up and this walk is like she has like no knees. She just does mm. the, all of the muscle has gone out of her leg, and she's basically just one step at a time like moving away from john and then the next time you see her she's leaving she's leaving the um uh like the premises are they even in the white house yet yeah they had to have been oh yeah you're right yeah, they are which we didn't even well, get so we didn't let's even get, get to that yeah because we're yeah, i mean in, like i'm glad that we like kind of got the whole that's the charles the charles portion arc. of our <laughs> yeah as they are um, approaching the mostly constructed but still very much in process um, White House, it is this incredibly bleak, uh, incredibly disturbing, uh, gray, muddy landscape as they are approaching this, like, horrible mansion. Like, it's, it is... It looks like they are going to a haunted mansion where they will be killed. It's completely awful. It's it's presented as like this is the worst place we could be. We are not happy to be here. Well, and everyone's and... covered in this. I mean, it's the 
the entire grounds is nothing but it's nothing but slaves and foremans. So you've got that, but then they're all right. coated, literally coated in a layer of plaster. So everyone yes. but John and Abigail literally looks like ghosts or zombies. It's like right. a horror. It's like a horror movie. It is a horror movie, and the horror at the center of it is the reality of slavery. And her, I mean, it's beyond discomfort. Like for Abigail Adams, Ooh, she, yeah. she, she was one of the most like vocal abolitionists of that like echelon of people. Right, right. Um, and she's looking around at all of these enslaved people and... You know, they they walk into the house, and it's one of the first things she says. She says, "Half-fed slaves building our nation's capital." What possible good can come from such a place? And I think that because it echoes what she says to George Washington that she is she is this voice not in the background but in the show it's she is embodying the voice in the background of we cannot neglect the reality that we are building a nation uh, on the backs of, on the backs of of slaves of, of a people uh, of a people of enslaved people and uh for us to proclaim liberty the way we are doing in a nation that whose economy is entirely reliant upon the slave trade yeah. Uh, is is the great shame and hypocrisy and it will be i think abigail in that moment in saying that is this will be the nation's undoing there there will be a reckoning exactly and and it, it will come sooner it will come later you know in carolina change they say change comes fast and change comes slow but change comes right <laughs> Um, it's an incredible scene and I think um, not heavy handed in any way and just uh, deeply unsettling to watch. I completely agree. Yeah, no, yeah. this is, yeah, we can, you know, I, I joke about Tom Hooper and especially it's so easy to do now, especially, I mean, oh, yeah. post, He's... post Les Mis, but post Cats. It's so the man should to... never work again. Like, come on. Right. You know, he should never even... be allowed to direct after the failure of Cats. Jesus Christ. But this is like, you can't even give him the benefit of the doubt of like, um, oh God. Oh, who am I thinking of? I'm trying, you know what I mean? Like other directors who are just like, you know, they're incompetent. So, so, so everything sure. that they do will be incompetent. But this man has an Oscar. Yeah. We yeah. gave him an Oscar. So, at least one, right? At least one. Although, did he win director for the King's Speech, or did that just win Best Picture? I don't let's know. find out. Yeah, let's let's find out. We've got the. Let me just look up. I've got IMDb open. One one Oscar, so he must have won Best Director. Yeah. Yeah, he won directing for the King's Speech. That's like you know, it, you expect like garbage from Joel. Well, Schumacher. and he won the Emmy for this. Joel Schumacher would give you like trash, and you know it's going to be trash. Michael Bay, you know it's yeah, but also Joel Schumacher has a. I mean, we don't need to pivot into Joel Schumacher, but his trash is is very specifically deliberate trash. It's very specific trash. Um, you cannot you cannot call cats deliberate trash. 
No. Um, and well, you, you can't even call like Les Mis deliberate trash, but it, it is nevertheless somehow it is. garbage. <laughs> Um, but then you look anyway. at, like, I'm sorry, like, honestly, this, and you look at, um, Elizabeth I with Helen, yeah. Helen Mirren, it's completely, I think that every single scene in Elizabeth I is essential. Like, yeah, there's not a piece that's missing. And it, he's not doing all of his, like, Tom Hooperisms with his, like, crazy Dutch angles and, like, you know what I mean? Right. Like, oh, my God. He's not I going mean, for, um gritty for grittiness's sake he's just yeah. sort of like looking at the period um yeah which i really do like about about that mini i can't wait to get to that yeah. series mm-hmm. but no i do think like scenes like the tarring and feathering and the the revelation of the white house Oof. um yeah are like maybe two of the best things he's ever shot absolutely yeah um and again i say like i do think this whole series as a whole is my favorite of his work yeah. Um, yeah, I'd say this and Elizabeth are my faves. Sure. So the other thing in episode six that is like the centerpiece, and it is the centerpiece of John Adams' presidency, is the Alien and Sedition Acts. Yep. Which is the culmination of what we were talking about before of this through line of Adams becoming comfortable or or, be, or meeting his, out his reactions to how much people hate him. His his politicking. Right. And um, I don't know. I think like the concept of the Alien and Sedition Acts in the age of Trump is so terrifying. Um, yeah. Because basically this was a moment where America was on the brink of war with France, right? Uh, yes. And um, the Alien and Sedition Acts were these four laws passed by Congress that gave the president the right to uh, deport any immigrants, specifically French immigrants, that he felt were a threat uh, and to sanction or um, censure the press, any negative press about him or the government yeah to silence to silence any kind of like voice that was anti-government or anti-president you know right and which is really really uncomfortable yeah and uh (laughs) adams did sign these into law the show i think does show him being very conflicted about this and really not agreeing with them personally because i do think by that point he he does understand that like no that is that is uh a key feature of democracy is that we allow our citizens to, to criticize our government uh, and that we welcome people seeking freedom, you know, like that's, right. that's the whole point. Um, it, it should have been the whole point. <laughs> right. So it's interesting that, but he is sort of the only one who has any queasiness about this. Like Abigail is like, why are you even con- giving this a second thought like nobody should be allowed to write about you the way they're writing about you well and that's the great thing about how they've written all of these characters is that in this moment this is the one time you're like abigail what like no (laughs) baby girl (laughs) like you were the beacon (laughs) right it's like abigail we get that like we love that you love your man but right we were rooting for you we were all rooting for you how dare you Right. Well, and it's interesting because there's that scene where they're at the theater 
and there's this really bizarre moment where there's this like actor alone on stage who's singing this really patriotic hymn uh and like John Adams arrives and he's like, everyone like stand for our president. And you just see how war hungry the people are that they want to go to war. And Adams does not, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, so this episode is titled unnecessary war. I don't know. I think it does a good job of of showing how, uh, how thankless the job of the president is and how thankless so much of John Adams's work was at that time as a politician that he was always sort of like the fuddy-duddy in the room that was like not as cool and sexy as Washington or Jefferson or Hamilton or any of these guys but like he was sort of the like frump in the corner who like is not the swashbuckling hero of the time but he made the very uncomfortable decisions um and it's I think what made him a decent president but um, and when he could get those moments of applause, must yeah. have galvanized him. Yeah. To do you know what I mean? When when the public opinion w- went his way. Yeah. Um, for someone who so long again had like tilted at windmills, it, it must have been such an extreme like relief. Yeah. To him, but speaking of that scene with the play, I was asking myself i was like are they seeing the contrast by <sighs> royal tyler i wonder if they are i mean this would have been that happened in like 1880 or 1787 and i think that that scene happens in like 1800 this would have been before he signed the alien and sedition act yeah but anyway right 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 i'm sure an actual like historian would be able to tell us exactly what play that was but... yeah i mean it could have been but... One of my other notes for this chapter was just, it just says Hamilton was a warmonger. <laughs> well, right. So that's, I think that's the other thing as we're talking about like the, the opinions about France. And this is also, again, I just like get so confused on all of these like political conversations because I'm sure. just like not interested in them. Oh, <laughs> um, yeah. Like, I just want to watch John and Abigail. That's really all I care about. Yeah. Um, History, I'm okay with. Politics, not so much. Right. But there's this... He has a few scenes with Jefferson where Jefferson is really gung-ho about them supporting the French Revolution. Right. Um, and that's kind of when you really see Adams uh, distance himself. Absolutely. From Jefferson. Yeah. Um, because I think he does Jefferson, who he saw as being maybe a little more eccentric, but not someone he considered radical. Right. Um, that he that Jefferson was just sort of the other side of the coin, but still very measured in the way that Adams was. Um, right. And, and that's this is him being it... like, "Ooh, Jefferson. I don't know. I feel like the French felt that way about Jefferson too, because he was part of part of their uh, talks, like before um, the reign of terror and everything. He was like he was right. brought in as like as right. like a um, not negotiator, but like an arbitrator, almost like a totally like a voice consultant kind of person. Yeah, yeah, consultant. There you go. Carl has words. That's right. Because that, well, that's what their fight is about. Is that Jefferson right. is sort of like, I gave them advice. 
and, and Adams he's is like, like what? what what were you even doing there right like you as you as an ambassador of the United States should not even have been in that room exactly but yeah and ambassador ambassador Janae feels the same way he's like we gave you your support that you needed and now you're gonna leave us and Hamilton's response is well we supported the king and the king or the king supported us and you killed the king so that contract is like null and void and it's such a it's such a smarmy shitty answer (laughs) which is like no wonder I dislike Hamilton as a person. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. Like this this miniseries did nothing to warm me to him. No, it really doesn't. It really doesn't. Um not, again, not even in these episodes, he is the villain. And um oh what is it? There's like I I think I may still be No, I think it is episode six where he has that moment with Hamilton where they're talking about putting Washington and as the head of the army, which I think is like one of the things that keeps them from going to work. Cause everyone's like, he's so old. Right. <laughs> like you can't do well, that. And, and, and Adam sees right through it. And he's like, you have to know that th- this is like a ceremonial position. Yeah. Even if he, d- even if I do accept this and Hamilton's like, what? I don't know that at all. I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you are such a fucking puppet master. Like what is wrong with you? Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty great. Yeah. <laughs> pretty great. Um, but yeah, no, that is very firmly, because I don't think we see Hamilton again in seven. I think episode six is sort of the pinnacle of like John Adams with at odds with Hamilton and Hamilton's seen as <clears throat> the manipulator of the sort of doltish but well-meaning George Washington. Right. Which and you could see that not sort be of farther like... from how Hamilton presents that relationship. Right. Um, and you see all of Hamilton's designs of I want a I want a gigantic army and I want a gigantic bank. Yeah. And both of those things, you know, the banking industrial complex and the art the military industrial complex are two of the things that are the most problematic currently. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that, yeah, Mm -hmm. I, I love how they, they kind of cemented that relationship pretty early on. Oh, actually one of the greatest, um, pieces of direction that actually happens in episode five is he, Adams enters the room and thinks that he's talking to Washington and hears, hears Rufus Sewell's voice, um, alexander hamilton and opens pushes the door open more and he's sitting there writing and talking to it's literally like a don't don't pay attention to the man behind the curtain Mm -hmm. it's such a great piece of direction he didn't even know that he was there and and he's clearly that's the moment i think that adams realizes he's not dealing with washington anymore he's dealing with Hamilton yeah using Washington as a puppet yeah and it's such a that piece of direction like is so stunningly done Mm -hmm. like thank thank you Tom Hooper for that because that is gorgeous yeah and you do he gets this look of surprise on his face he's like 
who the fuck is that? <laughs> he opens the door and he's like, this motherfucker. Yeah. Are you kidding me? Yeah. It's so good. Yeah. Anyway. So shall we retire to Peacefield? Ooh. I must be honest with you. I you did, did not watch Peacefield? I, I couldn't even bring myself to watch it. My notes on Peacefield are as follows. Mastectomy. Abigail death. Monticelli and Sally, July Fourth deaths, BFFs. <laughs> those I are mean, my, that's those about are it. My notes. I mean, those obviously, this like I love this episode because this is the shit that I'm here for. It's just the like quiet family moments, and I know like you are too, but like that's like there's I don't know. I I think it's it it it's so brilliantly structured. I think this miniseries oh, yeah. is so perfectly structured that we have this episode seven that is truly just the come down of everything and it's Adam's reflecting on his life. And there is the moment, uh, I think it's in this episode, where, um, and there's so much bitterness when, when Jefferson is elected because so much of Jefferson's election is is at the expense of Adam's. Um, oh, and actively, actively working. Well, and this is something that's kind of crazy is I didn't even realize until this rewatch and taking notes and in preparation for our miniseries podcast, um, I did not realize he was a one-term president. That Adams was. That, that Adams was. Yes. That completely caught me off guard. Yeah. Isn't that, I, I found that to be really, number one, I felt it was really, really disappointing. Yeah. And number two, it create it, it it made me see him in such a different way. Well, because I think I think the John Adams presidency was just sort of a stopgap because yeah. Washington, you know, we didn't have term limits. Uh Washington just didn't want to be president anymore. So this election just sort of happened. And even the show sort of presents Adams winning it kind of on a fluke. Uh, And it's just sort of this like interstitial presidency where they're needing to like kind of get their shit together. Like we need a really, we need the kind of fuddy-duddy sensible guy to just- We need a, we need a name that people have heard before. Yes. He's already been vice president. I mean, let's listen to ourselves. We are describing Joe Biden right now as well. But oh my! (laughs) Uh, I want to say so many things right now, but I I oh I know. But Mm. if the shoe fits, and and guess who's fine with it? Me. Oh hell yeah! And that's all I'll say about that. Mm Hmm. (laughs) Mm Hmm. Oh my God in heaven. The vice president to the much more heroic president. He's nobody's favorite. But we're just like, well, this will tide us over. Oh yeah. Um, You know, and I'm certainly not trying to compare the presidency of George Washington to fucking Trump, but. uh, Oh God, no. But I think Biden is is regarded in a way similar to how John Adams was, where it's like, eh, yeah, all right. But fucking vote we, for him. Right. We can we can deal with this for we can do this for four years. I'd rather do that for four years than that for four years. Oh, no question. No question. 
Um, but I think it's interesting in, in episode seven now that like after his presidency that they take some writery license of predicting the future where Adams is like, you know, John Thomas Jefferson will be remembered as like the father of the com- of the country and I'll be remembered for the Alien and Sedition Acts. Right. And we're like, yeah, a oh, little bit. Well, and it is nice that um, they give you that moment of, of those moments of him. He's literally going over his like correspondence and all of his le- all of his um, papers and things with Thomas. Like, if I even have a story to tell, it'll be here somewhere. Mm-hmm. So let's at least get it in in order yeah. for someone for David McCullough to write. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And yeah, I Which, mean, thank is... you, David McCullough, for thank telling you, David the story McCullough. originally. Oh yeah. And I think he is credited as a writer on all the episodes. I'm sure that's mostly a like collaborative thing. Um, oh, nice. But yeah, he oh, does have writing know. credit. Uh, but no, so episode seven, we do see the the big deaths as who oh. and this old age makeup. It is yeah the Willy Wonka contest. Between but you know what? John I will Adams say that and the Thomas wigs, Jefferson. The wigs in this look better than um uh Oh god. What the hell is that movie? The Patriot? Explo- Explosion at the Wig Factory. <laughs> um, um the one with Amy Adams and Bradley Cooper and it's like the 70s and like <laughs> American Hustle. Like, American Hustle. The wigs in this are better than the wigs in American Wait, Hustle. I don't even I remember there being wigs in American Hustle. I think that awful perm was his real hair. No, look at, literally look at Jennifer Lawrence's hair. Look at all of their hair. I mean, yeah, hair. they are probably wigs. Wow, that is not at all the film I thought you were going to say. <laughs> Explosion at the Wig Factory. Oh my god, Amy Adams in that movie is... So hot the hottest human that's ever lived uh anyway wow american we'll get hustle. to you. We'll, get... we'll get to you amy adams has she done him a... oh my god you know strike me dead strike me dead well it's because she disappears into the role <laughs> that's right oh my god my we gotta god save we gotta heaven. save sharp objects that's that's just that's gonna be patricia patricia clarkson my god um so john adams let's 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 bring it home here okay. uh nabby nabby <laughs> nabby nabby has breast cancer and any time that i'm watching something in set in like the 17 or 1800s or even early 20th century like anything that takes place prior to what i consider to be modern medicine so anything before the 1980s. Precisely. <laughs> Anytime someone in that period is having surgery, I'm like, oh, so they're going to die. Right. <laughs> right. Like, it, I cannot process that anyone ever survived surgery prior to Why? 1980. Why even have surgery? Right. Like, honey, you're going to get an infection. Like, you will be dead within a day. Even if this goes well. That's like birth scenes in period pieces. Like, oh my God. You always know by the music at the beginning of the birth scene if, if the woman is going to survive or not. <laughs> right. 
if it's like violins, she's gonna die. And I'm just like watching them do this. What eighteen? I think she died in eighteen thirteen. So I don't know how much time passes between when she gets the mastectomy and when she dies. But like, you know. Well, because she gets the first mastectomy, the, the her the mastectomy, and then and then realizes that the cancer has spread again. Right. And she's like, I'm not going through that shit again. Oh yeah, exactly. And in real life, she had been away and was like, no, bring me to Peacefield so I can die with... in peace with my family. Yeah. Um, um, but she does get a mastectomy, and it's a horrifying scene. And I awful. had to look away from it because it was really upsetting. And they like Even worse tire the... to the bed with like fabric. And I'm hoping they're giving her, so I can't, I really didn't, I watched it through my fingers, but like, they, no, give they her, didn't give her, they didn't give her shit. Oh my God. And then well, literally and like they the show horrible, a guy um, take a small sword and just start cutting. It's basically like that shitty steak knife you get at like Pizzeria Uno. Yeah. With your, with your pizza. Yeah. I don't think um, they show him making an incision. If they did, I certainly had covered my eyes completely at that point. But just no, the gesture enough of the knife going toward her breast, I was like, I cannot no, do this. No, I cannot do are, this. I'm literally closing my eyes so tight right now, and there's no screen in front of me other yeah. than the computers. I'm not watching the scene, and it still makes it. It's right. all of... Okay, so that scene, the scene on the boat... The scene where they're giving the smallpox inoculations. Oh, Each God. one has Ooh, this I little bit that. of like, it. They they have like these little bits of gore porn. Yes, which I'm just not oh. sure why they felt the need to. Honestly, to be I think so the smallpox graphic. one is worse to me. When they when oh. he like they slices dig off up the under little... your skin. Ugh. They they dig like right up under their skin, and they show you everything. Oh my God! Horrible. horrible. Um, I mean, I think it's just to show, like, this was a really brutal time. And, like, so I think this episode, well, and then Abigail dies, and that is a pr- uh, predictably stunning scene. Yeah. Because that is, like, the the end. That's That well, was his person. A... That was his, you know, and he's just sitting there crying, like, don't go, my friend. Ugh. The scene where she doesn't she she's holding something and she faints or something. She's sitting happens. on the porch with I think <gasps> oh I think it's it's either Nabby or Sarah, uh, and with Mamie Gummer and it's me yeah she's with Mamie Gummer because Mamie Gummer and starts calling. They don't calling even her. realize that she's like passed out. She, yeah, she faints and then Mamie calls for John Adams. And he, like, is trying to wake her up. Yeah. And he, like, says her name over and over. It's yeah. beautiful. It's beautiful. Although the wig on Laura Linney in that episode is pretty tragic. <laughs> but those were supposed to be wigs. It's not, like, wigs that are trying to look like I, real hair. Well, I don't know. At that at that point, it gets a little muddy for me. <laughs> over what is an intentional... Even... Because, <laughs> like, even... She could still set her own wig better to not make her look like she had the biggest forehead of any woman alive. <laughs> which is uh, which is a vast improvement on the BBC Jane Austen uh, miniseries is, is, is because those wigs on those ladies Oof. are not supposed to be wigs and they're wigs. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, but we'll get to that. But yeah, that's a, that's a different world to enter. But uh, I do think like the, so the thesis is stated in this episode when he is shown the painting of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Right. And he has this amazing, and he hates it, you know, and he's like, and he says to the painter whose, whose name escapes me right now, but um, he has this quote, he says, you know, in Europe, they say, nothing is so false as modern history. Right. And he, he chastises the painting of saying, like, the, the true history of the American Revolution is lost. It was John Trumbull. Trumbull. Uh-huh. Yeah. But he said, this, this scene that you are depicting here never happened. There was never a moment that right. we were all sitting there quietly together doing this. Like, this was brutal, thankless work. And yeah. history will completely paint it in gloss. It um, was not It was not a bunch of... Noble men rough and ready noble men getting together and agreeing on something it was it was petty it was shitty people died that were in the room on day one that couldn't come back you know what i mean yeah. like not everybody got out of this like unscathed yep and just like none of us there were as honorable as history is going to make us seem and that's the most perfect image for what this country is mm-hmm. um i think it's belize in um another tony kushner play i already mentioned uh carolina change um angels in america and he says something about like he's talking to lewis and he says i hate i hate this country lewis i hate it's just a bunch of big ideas and big talk and people like you mm-hmm. yes <laughs> and it's like that's one of my oh, favorite scenes shit oh mm-hmm. my god this person you know this queer person of color like understands these you these states united more than people did even like then mm-hmm. you know people trying to noble nobleize these uh these moments in history yeah. and john adams standing there going no no this did not happen yeah <laughs> like that's really really wonderful yeah and i think that and then you know he his last scene is so beautiful or well you know the not his last last scene but this the scene that kind of gives way into him on his deathbed and the back and forth of him and jefferson i mean that's that is a beautiful thing about this episode is the reconciliation of of adams and jefferson um but he has that beautiful scene when he's like i with uh thomas and they're out in the fields and he's like i see Oh God, I can't, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but he, he's like, I've seen the great halls of Europe and all these things, but I see more potential in this and that little shrub. Yeah. Um, And he's like, you know, I look at the smallest things and my mind travels the Milky Way. Yeah. Uh, It's, I mean, it's such gorgeous writing. It is. It's such gorgeous writing. And like, I have nothing to say about that scene other than it is such fucking gorgeous writing. And Giamatti is so good in that scene. Um, yeah, and then it's and still, then it still and really shocks me that anybody would complain about the casting. I know. That, to my mind, is the furthest 
Thanks. Well, because like, and this is not a knock to Paul Giamatti, but like, he is that, he's that kind of guy that you're sort of like, <clears throat> he's this sort of schlubby guy. And that is casting him as John Adams and stripping any heroism off the image of the founding fathers the way this show does. Um, for the most part. For the most part, yeah. for the most part. Um, and just presenting him as a man. They could Washington a little bit more. They really could have. But again, this is my thing. Like, no one knows what to do with Washington. I mean, Hamilton mm-hmm. is literally just, like, jacking him off in every single scene in that show. Right. To a point and where I'm like, him. what? And using him utterly. Well, and yeah. I think that it, it does show, it shows Washington from Adams's POV. Like, you see everything that happened from Adam's point of view. Whereas in Hamilton, the point of view shifts so rapidly. Like, are we only seeing it from Aaron Burr's point of view? Are we only seeing it from, like, Eliza Hamilton? Like, I don't, I don't get who, I don't get who is, like, I know Burr stands as, like, the the narrator yeah. but then there are parts of it that he would have no no way of knowing well sure he would no, have no idea what was going on yeah so that's the thing that's again not to not to shit on <laughs> hamilton again as we've been 50th, doing for the you know what yeah let's just call it what it is this is me, us being this is me personally being pro john adams the person versus you know you my are anti- you are camp Alex. adams i'm i'm team you're team I'm adams team Team, Team John. John. Team John. That's and, fair. Um, Everyone has their has their daddies, the founding enough. fathers. But it's it is funny to me. Like, don't don't give me a don't give me a narrator. Then, like, well, right. I actually I forgot get... until this moment that Burr is also a narrator. I always see those as two separate characters. And they are kind of. But the show doesn't write him that way. Like the like he is framed as Burr when he's in that role. Right. Right. Um. Yeah. It, it would have been nice to see the whole thing from one person's perspective since it is a historical drama but but i digress yeah Uh. (laughs) but so you know we bring it home with with adams and jefferson and i truly did not know until watching this last night that adams and jefferson died on the same day on the fourth of july uh about about five five hours hours apart apart. and john adams last words the 50th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence? Is that what it was? Yeah. Yeah. Damn. Go go right ahead with his last words if you'd like, my dear. Jefferson survives. Jefferson survives. Yep. Fucking crazy. Yeah. And that's beautiful. And I think so this is, so here we are at the final scene of the series. And to me, this is the most we are potentially about to elect America's first black president moment of the whole thing. And to me, this is the moment where this, where watching it now in 2020, I am really struck by the context of when this show aired. So this would have been the finale aired April 20th, 2008. The Democratic convention was that August. So he was not the nominee yet. Um, it was right. still him and Hillary. I believe, I don't know if Biden had dropped out at that point. Um, but even then, the narrative was was 
entirely between him and Hillary. So either mm-hmm. way, you had a narrative that we are about to do something that America has never done before. Either um, way. Either way. Yeah, exactly. And to end it with this, hang on, I just, I want to. Now, posterity, you will never know how much it cost us to preserve your freedom. I hope that you will make a good use of it. If you do not, I shall repent in heaven that I ever took half the pains to preserve it. That is how this series ends. And could there be a more direct call to action of like, do not fuck this up, America. We have just gone through eight years of war. Uh, and, and this is 2008. We're about to enter economic disaster. Right. Uh, and here is Kirk Ellis by way of John Adams telling you, you got to get us out of the darkness here. And that is one of the, one of the amazing things that this miniseries does um, is in no, in no subtle way shows you how fragile both democracy and independent democracy mm. are. Mm-hmm. They, they are, they are not, they are not being, they, there's yep. no, they're not being coy about it. No, there's, there's we are one with second that away to, from losing this at all times and with that call to action um at the at the very end it basically just cements what the entire thesis of this project what you said before like the project of this film yeah. has been is showing you how the stars need to align in the perfect way if you're trying to do one of two of, of, of a bunch of things, but one of two things, especially is maintain your democracy or fight for an even fairer and more um, equitable society, Mm -hmm. which are the two things, especially right now in 2020 that we are desperately trying to do. Mm -hmm. And it's it's kind of shocking because I didn't even I didn't even think of those implications when we picked this. No, me neither. And and rewatching it, just seeing how how valid the thesis of this show is right now. Yeah. I, I think that every everyone, if you've got HBO or HBO Max or Hulu with HBO or whatever the hell you've got, or you have the DVD or like you know. You know a friend who has one of those streaming services. Go watch this. Yeah. Watch it and um, take in the great costumes, take in the great scenery, the great um, character studies that are going on, which in in times of peace are really really thrilling and wonderful. But look at it from the perspective you have now. It's such a cautionary tale right now. I'll say again the you know watching this six years ago, it had a completely different impact on me than it had just this past week where i blew through it a couple of times and made notes yeah you know what i mean like no completely 
Um, yeah. No, it's worth a watch. I think it's, I think it was something that I was ready to be very sort of like, well, it was a certain time. And I, I just didn't expect it to be as insightful to our present moment as, as it ended up being. Absolutely. Um, yeah, it's great. It really is great. Well, and I think the first time I watched it was being an acting student and doing yeah. scenes from 1776 with um, the great, the the great, another fellow Chicago native. Well, not native, but current current Chicago dweller. Yes, uh, Brenda Scott Laszlo, and um, do she, me playing John Adams and her playing Abigail Adams. Um. I only watched this because I was doing those, the letter scenes, the yours, yours, yours scenes from 1776. And it was so like, it, it did at that time. It, and again, this is during the Obama administration, you know, I felt pretty safe. I didn't own any real estate, so I didn't really have anything blow up in my face, but um, it did sort of grab me by the throat and show me what, what beautiful nuanced dropped in acting was so yeah. even just from an acting standpoint yeah. like before i even had the inkling to look at things politically or with any kind of like worldview you know what i mean mm-hmm. i was a fucking theater student living in new york city like that's mm-hmm. that's what i was doing <clears throat> yeah. yeah well i think and i think i i remember I do remember watching this, not, I, you know, it was not the type of thing that we like sat down and watched, but um, because my, my parents don't, are not huge fans of Paul Giamatti or Laura Linney, um, <gasps> but we won't hold that against what? them. I think they need to give this another Peter shot. Peter and Elaine? <laughs> oh my God. Bleep it out. <laughs> um, I believed in them. But also, but it was like, I was like talking to my mom about it last night. And I was like, I don't know if this is a memory or if this is just the vibe of this show, but this is definitely something that my grandfather, my mother's father, like would have made us watch. Oh, totally. Because he absolutely had that David McCullough book, Pride of Place, on his bookshelf at the time. 100%. Yeah. And I think for this being a very sort of like dad show. Um, it really transcends that. I think it, I mean, and this, this pivots well into our concluding segment, but I do think the entire miniseries rests on the shoulders of Laura Linney. Absolutely. Um, they, they both do such a good job, but his, uh, you get, you get Giamatti's best moments from, yeah. Which was the same with with me doing the scenes with Brenda. Is she, she, taught me how to because, act while we, well, were, and that's, uh, while we were working on those scenes. She literally taught me how to act. But anyway. And I think it's such a great uh, dramatic expression of what was what history tells us about them as people that there is no John Adams without Abigail Adams. Absolutely. Um, yeah, it's funny to see the um, the cover art and stuff where it's like just him. Mm-hmm. You you would expect to see. I mean, she's always been my favorite founding mother. Yeah, um, and I couldn't even tell you why. But from a young age, I just have always loved it. And then, <laughs> um, seeing this and having that just be like cemented for myself was yeah. yeah, yeah. So to round us out and bring it home, <laughs> let's. Just to give the awards 
stats of this yeah. iconic miniseries. Uh, it it brought it home. It, uh, it literally. Won... I did not actually look up how many no- Golden Globe nominations it had. I don't think many because I don't. There aren't that many Golden Globe awards for TV. Um, but it won four Golden well, they Globes. Won four, yeah. Yeah, it won Best Miniseries Movie, Best Actor for Paul Giamatti, Best Actress for Laura Linney, and Best Supporting Actor for Tom Wilkinson as Ben Franklin. And I... Well, and I believe this would show any nominations that it hadn't won. So I think it was nominated for four Golden Globes, and it won four Golden Globes. Yeah, it would Yeah, nominated for four at the 66th Golden Globe and won all four. Yeah, Mm -hmm. And then in terms of Emmys, it was nominated for 23. 23. And it doubled up in a lot of categories. Like there were multiple episodes nominated within the writing and directing category and that sort of thing. Right. Um, So it won every technical category, except editing, weirdly, which I don't know how that happened. Hmm. Um, And it got the same acting wins as the Golden Globes. Um, actor for Paul Giamatti, actress for Laura Linney, sporting actor for Wilkinson. I will say, mm-hmm. I would, I would have much sooner given supporting actor to Stephen Delane as Jefferson. I I wish they had given him something because he he's in it from the beginning to the end. And I think his performance as Jefferson is one of the most fascinating in the show. I love how he. I love his performance in this. Like um, all of his roles, I mean, and he's in The Crown as well. <laughs> it's, wait, he is? He plays the um, portrait portraitist. Oh my uh, god, that's right. Uh, he's of, um, uh, Churchill. Yes. Who has the great? Oh, that's of, a great episode. If you see weakness, it's because there's weakness. If you see frailty, it's because there's frailty. Yes. And oh, I forgot and about that. It's he's he's brilliant in that, but he is also like you look at him and everything, and you're like. He's got this just silent, watchful, mm. like, stillness. Yeah. That, I, I don't know, it, it would be really interesting for me to see him in anything bombastic. Like, in any right. kind of, like, bombastic role. Well, and he gets there a little bit with Stannis. But even Stannis, he's a pretty cool customer. Yeah. Yeah. But his, and his diet, his, his vocal work in each of those things is perfect. Yeah. He gives, he gives Stannis such a gravelly like salt yeah you know salt of the earth kind of the salt king the salt king honey um okay talk fujimoto cinematography boom yep yep directing for tom hooper and of course it won best miniseries um and then at the sags which only had acting obviously uh again Mm. laura linney and paul giamatti win and yeah. Wilkinson is nominated, but he does not win. Two out of three. So I genuinely don't, again, like, I do not get people saying that they that the casting was off. No, it's the best that, thing. That, like, Paul Giamatti was, like, a gaping hole in the... What are you talking about? No. He's literally so brilliant in this. He's so brilliant. They're so perfect. They are so perfectly cast in these roles. Yeah. Ah. All right, well... Gorgeous. John gorgeous Adams. Gorgeous work. Great Should we series. announce what we're doing for our episode two? Yeah. So 
thus concludes our breakdown of the HBO miniseries John Adams as Carl. John Adams, 2008? 2008. 2008, um, Carl has already mentioned all the places you can watch it, uh, so go find it and give it a watch. I think it's, I think it is really valuable viewing at this moment. Um, so for our next episode, <laughs> we will be... Another one that is perfectly cast and yet the female lead basically wipes the floor with everyone including the male lead even though he does an amazing job sure but it's another it's another kind of Linny Linny Giamatti uh dynamic yes we will be revisiting FX's 2018 uh yes yeah 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 uh oh 2019 2019 excuse me sorry sorry Oh, okay. Based on based on the Sam Wasson novel, uh, Fosse, it's Fosse Verdon. It's Fosse Verdon. The book is brilliant. If you get a chance, please please read that book by Sam W A S S O N Wasson. It's fantastic. Yes. So that yeah. will be our next our next miniseries directed by directed by thomas, thomas, thomas kale, kale famous director of hamilton, hamilton. <laughs> we have just shit on i also can't wait to get into but the, the fact direction that... is one of the most amazing things about hamilton so th- oh, there's absolutely. literally nothing, there's no disputing nothing, there's no disputing nothing against that. thomas kale oh, no he's that, brilliant he's really the brilliant. direction is fabulous yeah um yeah um and and it will shock our listeners to know that that is not a Ryan Murphy show. Cause I feel like that's one of the things about that show that everyone just assumed that it was a Ryan Murphy thing. Well, and there, it has there that many, energy. I totally get why. There are many reasons for that. And we will get into all yes, of them. Yes, we sure will. Um, <laughs> the least of the least important of which, Oh God, do I even want to say it now? Let's, let's just wait until the next episode. <laughs> all right. So there's, you, you there's must, that tease. You must come see. Yeah. You must come listen to us, please. All right. Well, thank you for listening. And um, Carl, always a pleasure to have these rich conversations with you. Kate, this is what I've been missing from my life. <laughs> I know. I, honestly, we I said it to you before. I cannot believe we did not think of this years ago. I know. This is what we were doing. doing. This in silence <laughs> for years. And no <laughs> in a, more. In a vacuum. We will be silent no more. No our voices will be heard the topic of which um will be miniseries yes indeed. Our, our own special art form that we care very deeply about actually you really do you know i think it's my favorite medium it's the perfect blend of you get movie movie quality um writing acting cinematography in a television style you know it's that thing that netflix basically co-opted is yeah. they they do everything as if it's a movie but they keep it they make it a series right you know yeah yeah it's perfect Ugh. many series is is indeed okay what a great right. first episode i feel i feel i'm very proud of this me too okay all right signing off signing off goodbye thank you all for listening thank you okay bye now bye